Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced by WKXL in Concord, New Hampshire, and podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Well, COVID is in the news in not a happy way, I'm sorry to say, and we brought a special guest to talk about a very important part of what's going on with the surge in COVID. L. Myers is a congressional reporter for Courier, covering national politics. She is an alum of the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communication. Previously, she was a star beat reporter in Montgomery County, Maryland. She's a native of Portland, Oregon, the home of Powell's Books. And she's also a very serious hot sauce enthusiast. So, you know, we, we, Elle, we talk about politics a lot on, on our show uh, and the intersection of politics and public health these days could not be uh, more important. We're, we've got a, another surge of a raging pandemic. It seems to be getting worse in the United States here in our home state of New Hampshire. Uh, there is a patchwork of responses um, various towns are left on their own, schools are left on their own, knowing what to do. Schools have been in session, out of session, remote, not remote. Uh, it's been a very alarming story. And you wrote a really important piece uh, and published in The Courier, and we'd like to talk to you about it. So in your piece, you reported on some alarming new data on COVID. Um, tell us about that data. Sure, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on today. So what we found, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics released um, a new report this week, um, which found over a million kids in the United States have contracted COVID-19 since the beginning of this pandemic, which is just a staggering number of children. So wow. I think what grabbed my attention about this, and as I saw it begin to make the rounds on Twitter, this seemed to be the predominant reaction online, was that I think the sense we've all gotten um, is that kids tend not to get COVID. That was certainly sort of the implication of the early phase data that came in over the summer. What reactions did you get in your reporting to this new data? Was it taking people by surprise? Yeah, for the most part, it was surprise. Um, there was some anger. Thankfully, it wasn't directed at me, which is what often happens. But um, genuine surprise at this number. I think, um, at least in recent months, we've been really focusing on um, older people, people with um, compromised immune systems. We've been hearing a lot about frontline workers and medical personnel. But kids have sort of fallen by the wayside because for the most part, they're not experiencing especially serious COVID cases. But if I'm not mistaken, uh, while kids are not uh, in general experiencing severe COVID cases, there are other um, consequences that kids are suffering, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So at first, at the beginning of this pandemic, there was, you know, some body of information that that showed that kids were less likely to contract the virus. They were less likely to shed the virus and be very contagious. Um, and they were less likely to experience very severe symptoms. And now a few months later, we have the benefit of you know, hindsight and more data. And what we're seeing is that some of that is true and not all of it is true. So we're seeing that kids are just as likely to spread the virus. They are just as likely 
to um, contract the virus, but they are less likely to experience very severe symptoms of the virus. Um, but that's not to say that they are immune from very serious complications from the virus. So kids can still end up with very severe cases and it's less likely, but it still happens. I mean, in total, only 133 children have died COVID related deaths, which is still a very high tragic number, um, but it's much less than other age groups. Um, but we're also seeing that um, kids can end up with cases of multi-symptom um, inflammatory uh, syndrome, which is, you know, a very scary can of worms all on its own. Right. So that's interesting. I mean, you know, and just sort of to play that out, one of the, one of the complications that's been sort of the center of debate is what do the data imply and what do those transmission patterns imply for school policy, for school closure policy? This is close to my heart with three school-aged kids at home. Um, do you think that these findings and the body of evidence that you were referring to, both on total number of cases and transmission patterns, do you see that having any impact on school closure policy. I mean, this has been in the news this week, just yesterday, we're recording this on a Thursday, just yesterday, New York City did decide to go um, over the, the, the cliff, <laughs> uh, Bill de Blasio, and reclose its schools. We're, we're seeing uh, this play out in a, in a number of other school districts where they're clawing back their reopening policy. Um, so are you getting any sense of that in your reporting um, that these kinds of numbers, this kind of data is changing the way people are thinking about school? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that it is having an impact. Um, so like you said, New York City, um, one of the largest school districts in our nation is going to go ahead and close schools. We're seeing um, some school closures in Texas and Utah, and then even Georgia early on, um, you know, they reopened schools and then pretty quickly cut, shut them down depending on the, the district. Um, and so this new data, I think, is really, really important. Um, because we're realizing that kids are more susceptible than we thought. And I think what's important, and I think what was so shocking about this incredible number of children who have contacted, contracted the virus, is that this isn't a demographic in a vacuum, right? It's, it's 1 million kids, but it's 2 million or so parents, you know, it's hundreds of thousands of teachers that are being exposed as well. Um, and, you know, Early on, when schools were starting to reopen, the CDC had pushed some guidance that said that, you know, kids are less likely, it's probably safe, we should get these kids back into school for, you know, a host of reasons and then get, get parents back to work. Um, but, you know, new data sort of doesn't support that theory that, I mean, kids are getting coronavirus, they're spreading it, they are, um, you know, I don't want to blame them for community spread because it's a, it's a whole host of other things that's, um, attributable for that as well. But I mean, the CDC went ahead and removed that guidance in October. And I noticed that and I know other publications noticed that as well. Um, and there were some reports that that guidance had been written by political appointees. Um, and they went, the CDC went ahead and removed it without any sort of announcement. And, you know, that could be for a couple of different reasons. I like to give people the benefit of the doubt, which is sort of odd for a journalist, I think. But um, <laughs> they claimed that that information was outdated. You know, we found new information. We're going to go ahead and, you know, change our guidelines, right? But the fact, like, to me, what made me sort of do a double take was that, you know, it was written by political appointees. You know, maybe we could have seen that there was data to 
you know, negate this, that, you know, it just seemed a little bit, it seemed fuzzy to me. So I think there, there is definite information now that is important for schools to consider, you know, your network is so much bigger than you think that it is. So reopening schools is, is really not as simple as just getting kids back in the classroom. You know, there's so much more to it. In talking about the school uh, closures, obviously we're talking about uh, the rate and the uh, potential for kids to transmit. And we talked earlier on about some of the data suggesting that younger kids uh, may not transmit at uh, the same rate as others in the population. But uh, if, I'm, uh, if I understand what you reported, uh, it seems to suggest that kids over 10 may transmit at the same rate as adults. And if that's so, that has pretty serious consequences for the question of school closures. Obviously, parents have to get their kids into school in order to work. If the kids aren't in school, the parents are having a harder time working. You've got exposure to everybody in the school environment, parents, community spread, those kinds of questions. So if, if kids over 10 are transmitting at the same rate as adults, and if there is data, and we can call this part of the question, about asymptomatic transmission in kids over 10, uh, that has some pretty serious consequences for decision makers of whether they are school boards, parents, everybody else thinking about how to deal with the issue of schools while there's a general surge going on. Absolutely, yeah. No, that um, the fact that kids can transmit the virus just as easily as adults can um, is is really really scary. And I think um, I was thinking about this, and you know, kids are are funny. On if you if you don't expect them on the playground to yank off their mask, lick their hand, and run around after each other, you know, I mean, you're not a parent, right? So. So that issue of community spread within schools is, is really, really significant. And I think we're see, we have seen that in other countries as well. Israel is a really good example. They went ahead and opened their schools. And then when spikes hit, they went ahead and had to close their schools. So we're, we're following that same pattern, unfortunately. Um, you know, the, the data does show that they are, are spreading, um, you know, knowingly or unknowingly very easily. Um, and that means sort of really bad things for the people who um, work with them, for families, um, especially for families that are close to other generations like grandparents. Yeah. You know, I know we've only got a couple of minutes left, um, but you're, so you're, you're writing in this uh, story about uh, COVID and uh, it's an important story. And as Paul mentioned at the top of the segment, um, there's a clear nexus between, you know, our coverage of public health uh, and uh, our politics and, and government policy. In your normal beat, you cover Congress, which is obviously something that's uh, close to our heart. Um, what are you keeping your eye on as uh, the lame duck session uh, either does or does not look to convene in the next few days? There's uh, a pending possibility of uh, coming back to do some COVID relief legislation. And then there's the uh, new members of Congress coming in and um, looking ahead to what kind of a legislative agenda may get done um, in the new year. What are you keeping your eye on uh, in all of that mix of factors um, in the next few weeks? Sure, absolutely. So 
The biggest thing on my mind is the stimulus package, how we are or, you know, what we're going to see in these next couple of months. Um, I actually did an article just yesterday um, on a report that showed that 12 million Americans are going to lose unemployment benefits if Congress is unable to, you know, breach this impasse that they've been on or been stuck in for the last few months. Um, I think, I mean, it's just incredible to see the amount of hurt that Americans are in right now. I feel incredibly thankful to have a job right now. And so many industries, I mean, the restaurant industry, airlines, hospitality, they're just hemorrhaging jobs right now. And I thought it, you know, it, this is sort of a tangent, but I, I thought it was incredibly irresponsible for the president to claim that our economy has bounced back. You know, we are still not where we were pre-pandemic. Um, the job losses are just incredible. Um, and the, the it, it almost feels like we've got an open wound you know, for small businesses that need help that, um, you know, people trying to stay in their homes, eviction moratoriums running out. Um, so stimulus is right on the front of my mind. Um, I am really excited to see some new faces in Congress. Um, Cori Bush, a new representative from Missouri, um, is high on my list. She seems very cool. I, I actually don't know a whole lot about her, but she um, has activist roots. Um, it sort of seems like she might uh, be enveloped into the squad with AOC. Um, so I'm really, really interested to see where she goes. Well, Al, it's uh, time to wrap up. And I just want to thank you very much for coming on uh, and doing this really important, important work. Uh, because frankly, I, I don't know anybody else who, who took the initiative to talk about what's going on with, with kids. Um, the focus has really just not been there. And you've shown how important it is, how critical it is to getting uh, the surge under control. And uh, so we really appreciate you and your journalism. And we're going to have you back uh, on Off the Record uh, if you're willing to come. Absolutely. I would love that. Thank you both so much for having me. This is Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced by WKXL, podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We'll be back after a short break so you can hear from the good folks who keep us on the air. Welcome back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson, produced by WKXL in Concord, New Hampshire, and podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes for your binge-listening pleasure anywhere in the world. Well, here we are, stuck in no man's land. Humpity Trumpity uh, sat on his wall. Humpity Trumpity had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men could not make Humpity Trumpity sane if he ever was again. He's holding on, clinging to power. And meanwhile, uh, while he's clinging to power without a hope, uh, the election results this year turn out to be much more fascinating, much more interesting than a lot of people thought they would be. Uh, I think a lot of people in uh, certain parts of uh, uh, off the record world thought there would be a big blue wave. They thought a big blue wave would sweep Democrats into office uh, all over instead. Uh, Democrats lost seats in the House, the down ballot races, as we talked about last week, 
were um, not a big blue wave at all. New Hampshire, the legislature flipped from blue to red, the only uh, legislature in the country where that happened. And uh, there is a lot of dissection, analysis, discussion going on about what could, what, what happened? Was this a case of Democrats snatching defeat from the jaws of victory? 72 million plus people voted for the Trump and the Trump agenda. Um, why? Why did people split tickets? What's going on now between moderate and liberal, liberal Democrats? And what are the implications of that serious discussion? It's, it's kind of a perennial discussion uh, with the rise of the progressive wing of the party. Um, the rise of Bernie Sanders over uh, numbers of years, the agenda that so influenced um, uh, the Biden agenda, frankly. Um, so Matt, wh why? What? What's going on? What's a poor Democrat to do? Well, you know, look, we're still parsing through all the data and information that's emerging, and we're taking some of the information that came by way, by way of exit polls with a big grain of salt. I think we've covered on the show before the fact that you know, the exit polls have had some problems. So this is going to take months to digest, but there are some data points that are starting to emerge and they tell kind of an interesting story. I mean, for one thing, uh, Global Strategy Group, which puts out this weekly um, survey research report on their new findings, um, they're a great polling firm, uh, you know, came out with some, some interesting post-election polling results that showed that of people who voted for Biden, but then voted for Republicans further down the ballot. So these are these are ticket splitters. These are people who, by definition, are persuadable to vote for either party because indeed they did. Who were they? Well, it, it's beginning to look like they were generally Republican leading um, by about 20 points. Uh, they were about 55% moderate identifying, 55% suburban, which was something that we've talked about on the show before that so much of that persuadable universe was gonna be in the suburbs. Um, and about two thirds of them had a, a middle class or higher income of about over 50K. Um, so, you know, this is not a, a surge of uh, highly liberal voters. The, the, the people who were persuadable um, were these, you know, kind of traditional politics 101 um, folks who we've had our eyes on for a long time. They're these suburban moderates who are were turned off by the president who identify in polling that their number one reason for opposing Trump was Trump, lo and behold, but who further down the ticket are very open to Republican messaging um, and turned off by some of what they were seeing in the Democratic Party. So that's that's sort of the top line that I could see. So are are we seeing, um, Can uh, do we have enough information yet to speak in general about the American electorate, uh, or are, do we have to go state by state, region by region uh, to think about this? Because uh, the, there's some counterintuitive uh, points that have come out recently. Yes, Democrats made gains with uh, college educated people. Yes, Democrats uh, made gains with uh, people of middle or higher incomes. Um, uh, and yes, Democrats made gains in the suburbs and especially with suburban women. And if we think back to 
uh, the Trump election in 2016, where everybody was left scratching their heads. Why, why, why would a woman uh, vote for a guy like Trump uh, who said, uh, who treated women badly, who said bad things about women, and who um, uh, was uh, the subject of all kinds of lawsuits um, about um, uh, mistreating women and sexual peccadilloes. Uh, though the w women uh, seem to have turned uh, against Trump in this election, but Trump also appears to have made gains with African-Americans and Hispanic populations. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, I mean, yes, Biden won by a significant percentage, uh, 5 million votes on the popular vote, um, but he had uh, very short coattails. In fact, his coattails were so short, his jacket was up around his neck. Uh, in other words, he had no coattail. It, it played out significantly in New Hampshire, which was a, which was a, which was a poster child for how bad it could get. I mean, I don't suppose you could, you could have had uh, a, 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 a result that was less satisfactory. Here in New Hampshire, we uh, Democrats held on to uh, Gene Shaheen's Senate seat. That, that was rarely, that was, that was never really in doubt. Uh, they held on to two congressional seats uh, while the first district was perhaps a little more in play than the second, neither of those were in doubt. The governor, a Republican, uh, who had been very popular, very popular, held on, and both the, the legislature flipped, uh, both House and Senate, as well as the Executive Council, uh, which controls uh, spending and appointments um, in our state scheme. It was it was in, in in effect a Republican sweep below the federal races, and I mean New Hampshire is is an interesting state. It it it, it it's you know a lot of people have thought that it wasn't purple anymore, that it wasn't that it was blue, uh, and that we never we never had to worry about it. Um, anymore because it had gone uh, gone blue, um, and uh, it's clearly a purple a purple place. And in fact, the results, if you look overall at the U.S. House with Republicans gaining significant seats there, uh, maybe we're living in a purple country. Well, I think there's no doubt. And, you know, look, I, I think there are some fallacies of uh, thinking in the Democratic Party that are beginning, they're, they're beginning to get a little bit exposed in what we're learning uh, coming out of the election results. And, you know, I think there are multiple levels. I mean, one place I would start, it, it's interesting, I, I something caught my eye this week, it, it was sort of a callback um, to uh, a, a segment on CNN a couple of weeks ago, where a prominent Democrat said, and I want to read you something here. Th this is what he said. I had the experience, this was a presidential candidate. This, this will become obvious in the, in the course of the quote. I had the experience countless times on the trail where I say, hey, I'm running for president to like a truck driver, retail worker, a waitress and a diner. And they'd say, oh, which party? And I'd say, Democrat. And they'd flinch. Like I just said something really negative or, you know, turn some, some crazy color. And there's something deeply wrong 
when working class Americans have that reaction to a major party that theoretically is supposed to be fighting for them. So you have to ask yourself, what has the Democratic Party been standing for in their minds? And in their minds, the Democratic Party has taken on this role of coastal urban elites who are more concerned with policing various cultural issues than improving their way of life. Now, this is not some, um, you know, died in the wool moderate uh, saying this. Uh, this is Andrew Yang, um, who famously proposed universal basic income, which is, you know, the most socialist possible uh, policy prescription you could have. And I think what he's speaking to is something that's very real. It's an experience that he's having speaking to Americans in running for president, that there is a perception problem. There is a message problem. And, you know, you saw this blow up a little bit this week um, in the fight that got re widely reported between Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, House members like Connor Lamb, uh, Abigail Spanberger, um, folks who are in more conservative or moderate districts who are saying, you know, all this defund the police stuff, all the Green New Deal stuff, could you please dial it back a little bit? Because it is killing us. Um, and, you know, at a certain point, the plural of anecdote is data. And this is what all of these folks from moderates in the House to an ultra liberal like Andrew Yang running as Democrats are experiencing in places that are not, you know, ultra blue districts like AOC comes from. And so at a certain point, yes, you do have to ask yourself, like Mr. Yang is suggesting, what is going on and why do so many voters who are otherwise persuadable have this perception of the Democratic Party? It seems to be a problem. Uh, you know, it's a problem that you and I uh, worked on a few years ago. We we tried to work on some messaging for the Democratic Party. We found in general that uh, Democratic uh, supporters, Democratic donors um, really would 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 moan about uh, things like, well, we don't have a, an effective bumper sticker, but when uh, push came to shove, uh, nobody was really interested in developing message the way Republicans develop message. And in an information society where people are getting snatches of information, I mean, you know, there, there's so much, there is so much uh, between social media, conventional media, and uh, going on that most people just get some sense from top line you know, headlines. We're living, I guess, in a in a in a soundbite and headline society, and words matter. I mean, Jim Clyburn said uh, very very clearly, this talk of defund the police uh, is uh, is is going to kill us. Um, so, Democrats have a very broad tent. Do um, right now, uh, you know, just the other day um, it was yesterday in fact Nancy Pelosi was um, is the is the Democrats choice for speaker of the house she will be speaker again a remarkable tenure um, she they held the house but but lost seats when I was in Congress I I have great respect with for Nancy Pelosi my when I was there mine was the first uh, term uh, that she was elected speaker, the first female speaker of the house. It was very historic. Uh, and um, I found a real lack of sophistication, a lack of attention, and a lack of process for Democrats to develop 
a message. And in this election, uh, you know, I think there, there's, a, there's a lot to think about. Um, uh, Trump and the Republicans up and down the ticket were able to frame this as socialist rioters, uh, left-wing radicals, defunding the police. Um, you know, the impression that the Republicans pushed was um, Democrats are, uh, were, 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 were going to be, uh, 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 swear, swear allegiance to the ghost of Joseph Stalin and Fidel Castro, uh, that we were going to take away uh, police protection, and we were going to allow rioters and looters to run rampant in the streets. Uh, and that swayed a certain uh, part of the, the population. Uh, but there is a deep, there, there's something deeper going on here, um, I think, in the way moderate, moderates in the party and progressives in the party speak with each other, about each other. Um, and uh, whether uh, I have a real question about whether or not the purity of politics and the passions that uh, uh, for, for bold change versus incremental change, for uh, strong words versus moderate words. Um, really, somebody's got to, in the party's got to talk about it. Besides us here on the radio, Paul Hodes, Matt Robeson, uh, we are off the record, but we are on a podcast at Google Stitcher and iTunes produced by WKXL in Concord, New Hampshire. We are going to take a short break. We will be back after this. We're back. It's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes produced by WKXL podcast on Google Stitcher and iTunes. Uh, Robeson and I have been talking about the election and politics because we care and we're interested in politics and it's endlessly fascinating. We've been talking about some of the split between moderate and liberal Democrats uh, and there's a lot to unpack. It's still going to being unpacked. There's a lot of data, a lot of studying and a lot of analysis that is going to be done. Um, but Matt, let's talk for a minute about the left coast. Let's turn our attention to California uh, for a moment. California is an irrepressibly liberal place. Yes, there are pockets of conservatism. Uh, Orange County is famously conservative. Uh, and of course, there are conservative people there, but generally, California is the free and easy land of sunshine and beaches and hippies and just all the great liberal progressive stuff. It's a progressive, it's got a progressive governor and, you know, boy, I don't know why anybody would want to live in California. But meanwhile, there were some liberal ballot propositions on, 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 on the ticket. And the voting for those propositions did not go uh, as people expected. The, the voting there did not go along predictable racial lines. What's up? What was that about? And, and what do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, so in California, there was a ballot proposition to bring back a measure of affirmative action in the state 
university system, and uh, it failed. Uh, 57 to 43 in a state that otherwise voted for the Democrat at the top of the ticket by uh, the margin was was close to 30 points last I checked. And, you know, part of what's interesting about that result is that it it really stood counter to some of the thinking that was that was uh, preeminent in the Democratic Party uh, 10 and 20 years ago, which is best summed up as demographics is destiny. So there was a famous uh, study done in 2002 that suggested that the rising democratic electorate, the young uh, generation that was far more multiracial um, and with that um, somewhat more progressive was going to, as they came of voting age and became a bigger and bigger segment of the voting population was going to allow the democratic party to dominate national politics uh, into the foreseeable future. Well, that hasn't happened, clearly. And one of the nuances that you find under the surface is that a lot of these uh, racial demographic groups are not as homogenous as Democrats and, and, and some of the most prominent progressives would have you think. So uh, on that affirmative action proposition, um, it was strongly opposed by uh, Asian American voters. All 14 of California's majority Latino counties voted it down. And when you look beyond California at some of the very diverse Latino, Latinx populations um, across the country in places like Florida, in places like Texas, you know, what you find is a lot of nuance there. There's a Tejano culture in uh, Southern Texas that majority identifies itself as white. They don't, they don't think of themselves, they don't like the blanket term Latino or Latinx. Uh, in Miami-Dade, um, it's a Cuban-American population that's far more conservative um, and very reactive to the idea that Democrats are socialists. So again, I think it kind of goes back to the point that we were starting to talk about before the break, that um, the Democrats have a, have a bit of a problem here. You know, you were talking about the, the challenge of developing message in the Democratic Party. You know, I think that there, there, the problem isn't that there's zero message. The problem is that there are different messages. And, um, you know, the party is sort of like the, the, the guy who's got his uh, head in the icebox and his feet in the oven. And on average, he feels fine. Um, you know, there's, there's, it's very, very hard to align the different groups, the different constituencies that make up that big tent in the Democratic Party around a central identity and a message. And into that vacuum comes... Fox News and the Republican Party, who's all too happy to come in and define the Democratic Party as socialists for them since they can't define themselves. Well, so, so definition is important. Clarity and cohesiveness are important. Uh, so AOC and Connor Lamb fought about tactics. They fought about messaging. They they ever, you know, the Democrats are, are, are doing what Democrats do in the wake of a great victory like the one we, we've had. Um, uh, and, you know, the question is, why did Dems come up short? We talked in general about messaging, but who's right? And, and are Democrats capable of developing a coherent message? Uh, does a coherent message serve the Democratic Party? Or do we only win when we've got a, an enemy that we can point to and uh, run a negative campaign? Um, Joe Biden ran saying he would heal the soul of America. And uh, 72 million people said, not so fast. 
uh, what you think of the soul of America uh, is not the soul that, 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 that we're singing about here. Uh, our soul singing is about keeping immigrants out and putting kids in cages and going it alone in foreign policy and standing tough against everybody. And we don't care about the environment uh, and we don't care how we treat people. We're voting for President Trump and, and we're going to vote for Republicans, never mind what it means for redistricting, never mind what it may mean for the environment uh, or union folks or working families. So you can talk about healing the soul of America, but what Joe Biden is looking forward to as president of the divided states of America uh, may not be quite the level of, of, of awful, awful obstruction that Obama experienced in part, in my judgment, because of his race. Uh, and Biden is a little friendlier with people in the Senate, so it may not look the same way. But Republicans are saying, we're not going anywhere. We're not, uh, there's nothing to be healed. Uh, uh, you know, you people, you people, you, you just want to give everything away. So, so with, a, with a moderate like Biden, who is focused on incremental change or has been all his life, who was pushed left in the primary, but now has to govern, as he says, all of America. What, what's the message for Democrats over the next period of time, the cohesive message that changes the way people think about Democrats? Or is it beyond messaging? Is it going to be in terms of policies? And then what happens if policies and message clash? I don't know. Um, and I, if I did know, uh, I have a feeling that uh, it would be very hard to persuade a majority of the Democratic Party. You, you remember the old phrase, I belong to no organized party. I'm a Democrat. It'd be hard to persuade people, right? As you saw in the spat that, that grew up between Connor Lamb and AOC over the last week. Um, you know, it, it is going to be really, really hard. I would, the one thing that I would sort of push back on, not against you saying it, but against the sort of the general proposition that there is a, there's a difference that there, that there, are, there's an opposition between being bold and being moderate. I think that those, there's a misunderstanding there. I've long believed um, working, you know, as a staffer in Congress and closely observing how change happens, how progress happens in Congress, that boldness is not what people who, you know, are rabble rousing, you know, uh, uh, folks, you know, who are all about, we need a Green New Deal now. It's, it's not what people popularly think. Boldness is about discipline. Boldness is about vision and understanding that change doesn't happen overnight. And it's much more about persistence than it is about perspiration in the moment. And case in point, the ACA, most landmark changes like that are not well accepted by the American public. Look at the polling on Obamacare from right after it was passed, where it was dead weight that absolutely killed Democrats in the 2010 election cycle followed by 10 years later, defending the ACA being one of the prime top polling uh, issues for Democrats uh, in the 2020 elections. So, I, I mean, 
I, I don't know that there is one cohesive singular message. What I do think uh, Joe Biden as the, as the leader of the party can do along with Kamala Harris and congressional leaders who have been around the block, um, I think what they can do is preach a little bit of patience and a little bit of discipline about understanding that the arc of the moral universe is long and it has tended over the last 40 or 50 years to bend in the direction uh, culturally and legally um, and in terms of uh, government policy, it's bent in the progressive direction. People need the discipline to stick with that and um, to recognize that if they really care about these kinds of changes, um, they need to stick with it. You know, that's a, that's, <clears throat> that's a very bold thing to say because um, you've suggested something that is uh, a, a mind game. It's a brain twist. It's somewhat counterintuitive to suggest that patience and persistence in pursuing uh, a course is bold. That I'm trying, I'm sitting here trying to wrap my brain around how that's bold in the face of calls from progressives and the left that uh, you know, the agenda has got to be Medicare for all, um, uh, universal basic income, a Green New Deal transition, which happens uh, by 2035. Uh, these are not patient and persistent proposals. These are proposals for, for big, big change. So it's kind of counterintuitive to say, well, in the face of what the American electorate or people will accept, uh, boldness means taking those, those plans, those policies, those proposals, which may in the long term and the bent of the moral universe, the, the long arc of justice may bend that way, but our boldness is in setting out on the path. Uh, and it may be that uh, what Democrats need is a kind of education program with their messaging, using social media in a much more sophisticated way, using media, public relations, and traditional media in a much more sophisticated and cohesive way to, to change the way people think about Democrats and politics and the the nature of the proposals that will ultimately lead towards the kinds of goals that progressives and moderates share. Because, I mean, Democrats, Democrats across the board do share certain values. They share values, at least espoused, that say, we're for 99% of the people and not just the 1% who are making unseemly gobs of money. We want everybody to have the opportunity to do that. And our, and our plans and proposals, whether they are in business or the environment uh, or anything else are, are going to, to, to further that goal. We well, see- I, I mean, yeah. look, I know that we've got just a minute left, but it's worth spending that minute 
on, on historical example. I mean, look, in 1957, Lyndon Johnson led the charge to pass the voting, the, the, the Civil Rights Act of 1957. And he was screamed at by the left that it was a capitulation, um, a compromise with um, vicious racists like Richard Russell um, to pass this weak need uh, civil rights <laughs> bill. But history showed that he had a long-term arc. He had a long-term vision and plan. And it was the foundation well laid out by historians that led to the success of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. That is how change happens. You have to build a pathway. You have to build a runway toward it. We passed the Affordable Care Act in 2009. And if we ever pass the public option, if we're ever going to move toward some increment of expanded Medicare, it is going to be on the back of that foundation that was laid. So I think the boldness comes from being able to withstand the hue and cry from your own party, from people who don't have the patience and don't have the vision to see that it is a process and that the arc of the universe is bending in the direction that they want, but you've got to work with people to get them there. This is Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced by WKXL, podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Thanks for listening, folks. Robeson will be back next week with more Off the Record.